All right, hello and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. Now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Last week, um, we talked a little bit about the ultra-Orthodox Haredi community and its effect on these elections. We focused a little bit on the parties and how uh, this particular community is becoming an issue uh, during these elections. This week, we're going to talk about another prominent community uh, in numbers, even larger than the ultra-Orthodox community, and that's uh, what's referred to in Israel as the Arab community, the Arab-Israeli community, those Arabs who are uh, Israeli citizens who have the right to vote. Uh, they number around 21% of the country. Um, it should be said at this moment, to break it down a little bit more, the overwhelming majority, um, uh, I believe around 17 to 18% are Muslim. Um, again, within that Muslim community, there's, there's a lot of differences. There's Bedouins, there's Caucasian, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, that's, that's, uh, that's the largest group. Then there's around 2%, uh, just under 200,000 uh, Jews which for those who don't know is, um, it's a bit complicated in such a setting to break down the whole Jews uh, people or religion, but it's, uh, it was many hundreds of years ago, it was an offshoot of Islam. Um, there are people who are not Muslims. Uh, they even sometimes don't refer to themselves as Arabs, but they are Arabic speaking. Uh, then uh, there's the Christian uh, Arabs. That community is around the same size, so around 2%, less than 200,000. In fact, I believe it's smaller than the Jewish community. What's interesting in recent years is the Christian community has become split uh, between those who want to become more integrated, passionately Zionist, uh, believe in uh, greater coordination, cooperation with the Jewish majority. And as a result, have even uh, tried to rename themselves in the population registry in Israel, you're defined according to what's called nationality or people uh, rather than religion. Um, so there's Jews, uh, you can be a Jew, an Arab, a Druze. And uh, for the first time a couple of years ago, there was a ruling that you can also add in Aramean, which is a title which uh, a certain group of Christian uh, Arabs who don't like to be called Arabs uh, decided to call themselves. These are people who will go to the army even though they don't need to. Uh, and then you have the others who are still very much part of white Arab society, uh, let's say to a certain extent, ideologically and politically are in sync with the majority uh, Muslim population. So that's a little bit about the statistics. Why have the Arab population become such a, an issue in these elections? Largely because Prime Minister Netanyahu has made them an issue. If we look back into a little bit of history, we see 2015, there was that famous comment of the day of elections, We've been used to uh, what, what are called in Israel Netanyahu's gewalt moments. Gewalt meaning, you know, shock, horror, uh, usually has something up his sleeve where he tries to instill some level of uh, urgency into voting for Likud, into voting for 
parties associated uh, with Likud in 2015, he made probably the most notorious and infamous stay, uh, statement, which we now know was pre-rehearsed and, and uh, you know, affected uh, in strategy meetings weeks before, that the Arabs are, are, are swarming to the polls and that could be the end of uh, right-wing uh, rule. Uh, we know now that that's completely false, but it did certainly uh, propel quite a large number of last minute voters towards Likud. Uh, he subsequently, after the elections, apologized for it. And in other elections, we saw trying to intimidate the Arab community by having secret uh, cameras instilled in, 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 in some of the observers, et cetera, et cetera. Well, so if we've seen the sort of intimidation and the scare tactics in the, in the, in the past, in these elections, Netanyahu has gone 180 and tried to embrace this community. It's been a very interesting development. Uh, the jury is still out exactly what he means by this. Is this just cynical or is this really uh, a change of heart and embrace? Uh, this all sort of started during the last Knesset when uh, a member or the leader of the Islamist party, uh, by the way, just to take a step back, the Arab community, like any other community, is uh, fractured politically, there's everything from communist to Islamist to nationalists. Um, and usually in the past, they used to run separately. Uh, but ever since the electoral threshold was raised, uh, they basically ran as one joint list. And in the last elections, they received 15 seats, which was uh, quite simply, you know, larger than they've ever had before. Since then, uh, the leader of the Ram party, uh, Mansour Abbas, the Islamist party, has been courted and fated by Netanyahu. Uh, there's been very much a sort of um, a working relationship between the two. Uh, Ram, with its, I believe it has three out of the 15 seats, or maybe four, uh, basically has either abstained or voted with the government on some things which have left many in the, uh, many other members of the Arab list flabbergasted and really sort of shocked over what's going on to, to side with Netanyahu, the right wing, was seen as something very much, uh, you know, sort of out of uh, character for uh, the Arab political leadership, but, but it has happened. Um, and Netanyahu has taken advantage of this and basically tried to do a lot of outreach into the uh, Arab community. He's talked about receiving between three and four seats from the Arab community. The most recent polls show that he's got about one of his 28 or 29 projected seats from the Arab community, which is still uh, pretty good. I don't think that uh, Lee could have probably received one uh, seat from that community in the past. Again, I wanna differentiate uh, between the Druze community. The Druze community uh, has historically had representatives in Likud and Yisrael Betenu and other right and left-wing parties, um, and they have voted for them, but I'm talking about the wider Arab community. Um, but what Netanyahu has done is he's understood the pulse of the community. Netanyahu, as we know, is a great campaigner. We've said it many, many times. And he's someone who has very good polling, very good pollsters, American pollsters. And they've told him exactly what he needs to know about doing outreach to the Arab community. And if you see the recent polls, remarkably, I saw a poll uh, from December, the most important issue for the Arab-Israeli community and something which was on the news every single day uh, over the last month was law and order. Uh, there's a lot of gangs, there's a lot of crime in that community, uh, there's a lot of killings uh, and a lot of the uh, majority Arab community who are obviously not involved with this are really worried, you know, to walk the streets at night, there have been, you know, uh, assassinations, uh, 
there was a very famous or infamous moment where there was a shootout between an Arab gang and the police and a medical, a young medical student who happened to just go out and see what was going on was gunned down uh, mistakenly by the Israeli uh, security um, officials and that got a lot of attention as well. But the fact remains that it is a community that is not properly enforced and the Arab community themselves are calling for greater investment. Five years ago, Netanyahu promised to give $2 billion for greater policing, setting up more police stations in the communities. That didn't happen. Again, there's been, uh, over the last couple of months, another uh, promise by Netanyahu to improve policing in the community, to give more budgets. So far, it hasn't been given, and the Arab leaders are saying this is more talk, but mostly these are Arab leaders who are invested in maintaining uh, the support of the Arab community, in other words, the leaders of the uh, Arab parties. Netanyahu, a lot of people are, are sort of, you know, uh, wondering what he gets out of this. He gets a few things. First of all, potentially more voters. Second of all, by breaking up the Arab list, which he's already succeeded in doing, he's uh, potentially going to see that at least one or one party is going to be below the uh, electoral threshold. And as we've talked about before, when those votes get thrown away, they get evenly split. So that could uh, make a big difference. And as we've talked about, these elections will come down to one or two seats. So every seat, every strategy, every tactic to try and waste seats, uh, waste votes on the opposite side of the political spectrum to your own is very, very important. Remarkably, no, this cynicism, as some would describe it, has really known no bounds recently because a deputy minister, a Druze deputy minister in the prime minister's office, a Likud member of Knesset, uh, this week it came out remarkably that he'd even negotiated or approached the Palestinian Authority to try and have them have some influence on the Arab society to vote Likud. Now, you know, that, that's really a bizarre moment when Likud, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, someone in his office, someone who works for him, is part of his party, goes and negotiates with the Palestinian Authority to try and have more people vote Likud. We know we're living in bizarre times. Uh, a lot of play was made out of that, as you can imagine, by other right-wing contenders or even left-wing contenders and the hypocrisy and the cynicism. Prime Minister Netanyahu denied that he was involved, uh, but a lot of people are saying if it truly, he had no knowledge of it or he wasn't involved, then why isn't this deputy minister fired? Uh, he hasn't been fired. Even the Likud, the young Likud uh, social media accounts called for the firing. Um, uh, but that uh, those particular posts were removed. We know that Yair Netanyahu, son of uh, the prime minister, is very involved with the young uh, Likud members, and usually a lot of it is under his sort of uh, tutelage. So the fact that uh, they called for the firing of this deputy minister and that it was removed uh, only you know, a short time after shows that there is certainly a, a certain amount of backlash within the Likud. Um, well, it remains to be seen whether there's much uh, hay in that, but it does seem that uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu wants two Abbasis to help him achieve a greater result in the uh, Arab community and thus a greater chance of being crowned Prime Minister after the next elections. Uh, on to other issues. Uh, in, in, you know, we, we spoke last week and we talked about the, the Biden-Netanyahu conversation. Will it, won't it happen? Well, just as, just as I got off the call last week, I got off this webinar, it appears that that conversation did happen. 
Uh, we talked about what sort of message that was sending. The interesting thing is, you know, if we look at, I, I talked about the fact that it was more a personal message to Netanyahu rather than the snub of Israel. And if you look at it, uh, uh, you know, Secretary of State Blinken has spoken to his counterpart, uh, Gabi Ashkenazi, Foreign Minister of Israel, more than any other leader in the world, except for the British Foreign Minister. And there's many other levels where there's very close cooperation and intimate calls, long uh, discussions. So I think that plays into you know, the, the message that they're trying to send to Netanyahu, at least trying to ensure that Netanyahu doesn't make hay out of his relationship with, uh, with the US administration, as he has done in the past with the Trump administration. Um, and uh, lots more going on. But I think with that, uh, I think it's time for your questions. I'm happy to answer anything about what I've mentioned or any other issues that have come up. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much. So the first question we have in is, uh, what percentage of the Arab communities, Arab-Israeli communities, serve in the IDF uh, for the respective communities? Are the numbers increasing? Um, ever so slightly. Um, there, are, As I said, there are many different communities. First of all, the Jews serve. And in fact, the Jews are very proud of the fact that they have more uh, people in the highest combat units than any other community in Israel. So they are very loyal, very passionate uh, you know, servers of the IDF. Uh, there's also uh, Bedouin groups which serve. There's the Southern Bedouins who are, make excellent trackers. And there's whole units with uh, uh, Bedouins, which obviously Arab Israelis in the South. Um, and as I said, there's a growing uh, population within the Christian Arab or Aramean uh, community that are serving. But on the whole, the overwhelming majority do not serve. Um, but that's not really necessarily a barometer for integration. Um, there is, I feel in the last few years, there is an interest to become more integrated. More Arabs probably than ever before want to see greater Arab representation uh, in the government. To be fair to Prime Minister Netanyahu, he put an Arab-Israeli, he had certain reserve spots. He didn't put him in a realistic position, um, or at least not what the polls are showing you are realistic. In, in, he's in the 30s. But he has said that if he does get in, he would like to appoint him uh, as, a, as a minister for Arab affairs. Um, so the numbers of the IDF are not necessarily going up uh, massively, uh, but there is, that's not necessarily a sign that they don't want to become more integrated. It does seem that they do want to become more integrated. There is even calls for an Arab Israeli party, uh, an Arab Jewish party. There is an Arab Jewish party, which is called Hadash which is the Communist Party, which is part of the joint list. It's predominantly Arab, but it always has at least one prominent uh, Jewish member. Um, but there is talk of, you know, a, a party that really, you know, envisions a greater cooperation and can work with the government, can be part of a government. As we know, no Arab party have ever been part of any Israeli government. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what happens in these elections and probably ones to come. Thank you. Um, what is the reaction of the Jewish would-be voters to this courting of the Arab electorate? And how is the shot campaign? How is the shot campaign? Goes. The shot camp, the, the shots for shots? I suppose so. <laughs> okay, well, first of all, how, how is the uh, Jewish public? Um, well, again, it depends where, where you sit. You know, on the one hand, uh, yeah, Lapid came out, uh, I think it was today in the news or yesterday.
have no, you know, we, we talked about coalition building many times over the previous weeks. And, you know, he was asked outright, could you see the joint list as part of your government? And he said, why not? Um, they sort of compared and contrasted that some in the media uh, with comments he'd made in the past where he said he doesn't see them as partners in a future government, but the maths this time are, are different. And Prime Minister Netanyahu made a lot of hay of that, really tried to promote that and show, look, this is a guy who's going with extremists. You know, and Netanyahu is playing this, this, this game where, you know, he tries to delegitimize the Arab political parties while saying the Arab Israeli uh, community is a partner. Um, and, you know, the fact is he's, he's slamming uh, Yael Lapid for saying that he would sit with the joint list, whereas he's at least someone in his office uh, under his, uh, you know, under his uh, umbrella is basically going to negotiate with the Palestinian Authority uh, on trying to get more votes. So th there's a lot of games going on. I think the majority of Israeli public would have no problem with uh, um, Arabs in government positions, in the highest positions, as long as they're not from that ilk, like Ahmed Tibi, who slams Zionism, who attacks Israel in international forum, who, who, who calls Israel apartheid, who, you know, and, and all these sort of things. So I think that does the Arab community no service in the eyes of the majoritarian uh, Jewish public. But I think uh, that they would have no problem with having Arabs in you know, executive positions. There have been Arab ministers in the past, um, but certainly I believe that the attitudes of both communities are changing and uh, it remains to be seen what will happen after the elections. Thank you. And we got some clarification from our viewer. Uh, they were asking about the fight against COVID, the, the vaccination shot campaign. So, right. Okay. Um, it's, it's still about 80,000 new shots every day. Um, we just had a press conference tonight of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu saying we need to get to a point of, I believe, he said five and a half million uh, before they believe that we've got to some point where they can let even more of the restrictions go. Um, they're trying to persuade a lot of younger people where the majority have still not uh, received their first uh, dose. There's still a lot of skepticism. Uh, the Green Pass, which we talked about in the past, still hasn't come to fruition. So people are not really seeing the benefits of it. There's still not the big incentivization, incentivization for it. Uh, uh, tomorrow night, from tomorrow night for a few days after, we're going to be celebrating the Purim Festival, or the, uh, they decided to have curfews because there's a lot of party, a lot of drinking, a lot of merriment around this uh, festival. And so from 8.30, from tomorrow night until Sunday night. Uh, so that's where we sort of stand on the, uh, on the, Okay. Sorry, we lost you for a minute there. But uh, so last week you mentioned about the ultra orthodox voters and their importance for Prime Minister Netanyahu for the elections. Uh, did the Prime Minister move on to Arab votes and could this harm his position in the ultra orthodox community? Well, the, the two are not uh, mutually distinct. That, that you, you can reach out to one. 
Premier Netanyahu is not really outreaching to the ultra-Orthodox community. He's happy for those voters to go with the ultra-Orthodox parties because they're his most natural allies. In fact, this week, we had the what's now, uh, you know, sort of a common sight in every election uh, campaign of the Prime Minister Netanyahu trying to sign up as, as many of his what's called natural allies as possible to a pledge not to negotiate separately, but to negotiate as a bloc. In previous elections, you've had Naftali Bennett join, you've had uh, Smotrich and a few others. When well, these elections, all he could get was uh, Shas and United Torah Judaism, the two uh, ultra-Orthodox parties. Even Smotrich, who said that he will recommend uh, Netanyahu, said that I'm not signing this pledge. We've seen that it's uh, irrelevant in the past and, and it should be about issues and not about just signing up. So really, uh, you know, the ultra-Orthodox are still very much by his side. Um, and the ultra-Orthodox tend to actually side with the Arab population on many issues. Don't forget they have many issues in common, whether it's serving, not serving, I should say, in the army. Uh, it's many of them have uh, larger families, so they want uh, larger welfare packages. Uh, so they, they face some uh, very similar issues when it comes to religion and state. There's sort of sometimes even unwritten agreements that even when it's an issue of uh, something to do with Judaism or to do with Islam, there was, there was a whole uh, issue a number of years back by trying to create a law that would limit the decibel levels of the call to prayer in Israel because they said it was just getting out of control and it was all hours of the night and very, very loud. Well, the ultra-Orthodox uh, parties decided to side with the Arab parties on that, which made the law not uh, possible to pass. So in the, uh, you know, maybe at the grassroots, there's a certain amount of suspicion, but at the political levels, there's, there's a lot of coordination between the two. So uh, Netanyahu's outreach to the Arab community is certainly not seen as anything problematic for his uh, political allies in the ultra-Orthodox party. Understood. So in the past, have there been other political parties aside from the joint list uh, Arab parties? Uh, courting the Arab community, and which party has historically received their support? Well, historically, well, first of all, it, it's important to note at this point that the Arab vote is certainly not uh, in line with its population. As I said, you know, historically, they got 15 seats in the last elections when they're around 21% of the uh, country, which should at least allow for 25 seats from that community. Well, historically, they don't vote in as large numbers as the Jewish population. Uh, every survey that I've seen the last few months shows that that's probably going to continue. Um, they say around 55% will vote this time, whereas the average in Israel, I think, is around 70%. Uh, so there's quite a lot of Arabs that don't vote. Uh, historically, apart from the Arab parties, Meretz, which is the far left uh, party, they say even in one of the recent elections, half of, it votes, half of its votes come from the Arab party, uh, Arab community. And in fact, they, in these elections, they've done a lot of outreach um, to the Arab community. And I think at least two or three of its most prominent people on the list are Arabs. Uh, interestingly enough, about a year or so ago, they came out and said that they're no longer a specifically Zionist party. And that was probably to make them more palatable uh, to the Arab community. So probably uh, merits to uh, the best. Um, historically, also the Labour Party have had a certain amount of uh, success in the past, at least, with the Arab communities. There's a lot of uh, um, controversy around number eight on the Labour Party's list, an Arab woman who has come out with some statements in the past which are deemed problematic. She said she won't stand for 
the sirens on Holocaust Remembrance Day and uh, the Fallen Soldiers Day and made some other problematic statements about Israel's uh, response to terrorism emanating from Gaza and they found all manner of social media posts and things that she said in the past. And um, at the moment, uh, until that's overruled, which it undoubtedly will be, uh, the, uh, the Knesset uh, committee has ruled her unable to run, but that's usually overturned. The, the, the first committee is usually one made up of all the political parties. So whichever way they want, you know, whichever is the larger group will, will get it. And at the moment, the right-wing parties hold sway. So uh, at the moment, she's not allowed to run, but that will be overruled by the, by the Supreme Court very, very soon. Um, so the Labour Party historically, especially in its heyday, got a lot of votes from the Arabs. As I said, the Jewish community, which is a smaller community, uh, vote for some right-wing parties. Likud managed to get quite a large number. Yisrael Beitenu have always had the most prominent um, and consistent uh, member of the Jewish community, Hamad Amar, uh, who definitely, there are many uh, Jewish communities which vote in very large numbers for Yisrael Beitenu because they put a lot of emphasis on that. Um, and even had a Christian uh, Arab member uh, but usually the, the left-wing parties, the far left, are more successful in courting the Arab vote outside of the Arab parties themselves. Thank you. Here's a topic we haven't talked about in a while. Uh, how has the Israeli Arab population responded to the proposal several months ago to annex the West Bank and the loss of Arab access to the Jordan River? Um, I mean, you know, they would have been against it. It's not really an issue anymore because it's off the table. Um, but it's interesting that, again, in polls that I've read, the Palestinian issue, although it's really prominent amongst the Arab uh, political representatives, amongst the community itself, it's, it's not prominent. Uh, a poll that I read, you know, on, on, on what are the most important issues, I believe 55% was law and order. The next... I think was unemployment at 11%, which shows a massive gap. The Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict was less than 2%. Another big issue, by the way, which we haven't spoken about, which, is, which was considered very positively by this community, which certainly will have emboldened Prime Minister Netanyahu, is that their favorability, uh, relative favorability to the uh, normalization agreements with UAE, uh, Bahrain, uh, Morocco, and others, uh, many uh, Israeli Arabs are going to the UAE, are going to Bahrain, or at least when we can, at the moment we can't because the, the airport's pretty much closed. But before that, uh, many Arabs were, were going and they saw this as very positive. And this probably also changed certain perceptions about Prime Minister Netanyahu. Maybe he's not a racist as many would uh, describe him in that community because here he is making agreements and playing nice and, and creating all sorts of nice agreements with all these Arab countries. So I think maybe that also had a certain level of uh, that, that managed to change the perception about him, at least amongst a certain uh, element. And again, he's, he's never going to get the majority vote. All he's seeking to get is to, to push the vote for the Arab political parties down and try and get at least some votes to push him up one, two, three, who knows uh, how many seats when it comes to uh, election day. You did guess the next question, and um, that would be, have the Abraham Accords narrowed the divide between Arab and Jewish Israelis? And if so, how is this manifested? I believe so. I believe this is, as I said, it, it, it's, it's changed the perception. You know, it, it's, it's far more difficult to describe uh, 
Israeli society, Jewish majoritarian society, even Prime Minister Netanyahu, as anti-Arab, where here he is, you know, signing agreements and really just showing a lot of love for these countries. I mean, the amount of talk there was around that and hope and positive language, uh, I think has changed the perception. And, you know, myself, I was in Dubai in December and there were plenty on, on my flights there and back. I think at least half the flight was uh, Israeli Arab and half the flight was Israeli Jewish. Um, a lot of Israeli Arabs are going out there. Um, so they definitely see this as positive. And even there's talk of maybe Israeli Arabs going out there for, for professional reasons, for uh, being able to work there. Obviously they speak the local language and culture, religion, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, it, it definitely had a positive feeling uh, amongst a large sector. I don't know if it's the majority, but amongst a large sector of the Arab community. Thank you. And do you think that the Biden administration will further pursue the Abraham Accords? We talked about this uh, a little bit, a little bit, a, a couple of months ago. I, my, my feeling is that, first of all, I don't think the Middle East will be, apart from Iran, uh, for obvious reasons, will not be uh, front of the agenda, even on a foreign policy basis. Obviously, foreign policy as a whole will be on the back burner because of everything that's happening uh, economically, the coronavirus. Uh, but it's clear that, you know, apart from Prime Minister Netanyahu, no other uh, Middle Eastern leader has been spoken to. Um, they're talking about the, um, the lead, uh, uh, MBS of Saudi Arabia will receive a phone call, I believe, next week uh, from uh, President Biden, but it's clear that that's not going to be an emphasis. Um, and they have not, as of yet, uh, appointed a Middle East coordinator or a coordinator to the conflict, which previous um, administrations certainly had. Um, so I don't think there'll be an emphasis there. And I think to further and have more uh, normalization agreements, there needs to be some input from US. I mean, if we see with the Agreements before you, you know, with the UAE, they promised fighter jets. With Morocco, they uh, they promised recognition of um, their title to uh, Western Sahara, uh, Bahrain, Sudan to take them off the, the terrorist list. So there needs to be not just you know sort of uh, ushering. There needs to be some direct involvement and even some goodies given by the American administration to help this process. And I, I don't see that at the moment. Uh, you never know. There is even talk of. Israel giving uh, some of its extra um, uh, coronavirus uh, vaccines to some countries for diplomatic purposes, we're being told, we're not being told exactly which these countries, perhaps there could be something there, but the numbers are gonna be relatively small. So they're probably not going to suddenly, I don't think a country is gonna suddenly recognize Israel on the back of a few thousand vaccines, but uh, one never knows, but I, I, it's, it's certainly not in the front burner and I don't see anything happening. I could be wrong, but there doesn't. There needs to be a lot of buy-in uh, from the American administration, and I don't see that at this point. All right. Well, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. Ashley, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. Uh, for our viewers, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Patrick Clausen discussing how fares Iran's economy after Trump. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a great day. <laughs>